0: This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. So uh, as you can see, the title of today's sermon has a couple of terms that we tend to associate with the financial realm. Uh, both are terms that adults should probably know, and you know, I could give a short economics lesson and explain these, but I don't have the time or interest to do that. See what I did there? Interest is another economic, thank you. Um Uh, That said, I do want us to think about these two terms right here in relationship to cost today. And I'm going to say more about that in a little bit, but to get us going, I'm just going to remind us where we left off last time. So at the end of last week's scripture reading, we encountered this scene where the 12 brothers are together, but 11 of them... The 11 that came from Canaan, they still don't know that the 12th one, the man in front of them, is their sibling, their brother Joseph. They've come back. They've come from Canaan to Egypt again, and they're in the midst of a feast that Joseph has thrown for them. And the youngest, Benjamin, Joseph's full brother, he has five times as much food heaped on his plate as the rest of the brothers, than the rest of the brothers got. And so we're sort of left last week with this little bit of a cliffhanger. When is Joseph gonna reveal his identity to his brothers? And the answer is today. But not before he messes with them a little bit more. He's gonna mess with them a little bit more. In fact, there's a sense, y'all, that What happens in today's reading, in today's focal passage, is the worst of Joseph's acts of revenge. It's the worst of his testing. And there's a good chance, you're going to see when we read this, that what he does to his brothers causes high emotional stress, probably some psychological trauma. And honestly, the way this story reads, it seems it was perhaps unnecessary, to do all this. He could have revealed himself like his identity during the feast, but he doesn't. Instead, he continues running these tests, these diagnostics, to see if his brothers have changed as they claimed they had changed. And I suppose all of us, at some level, can kind of relate to that. Um, When someone has wronged us or done us over, especially more than once, we're not out of line to be cautious and perhaps even test whether they're the same person still or they have changed. I suppose it just depends about how we go about the testing, right? Joseph goes all out and not necessarily in a good way, not necessarily in a healthy way. And that's where we pick up today. Uh, Dinner has just ended with full stomachs and a good night's sleep. The 11 brothers wake up in the morning and they're ready to head back to Canaan to father Jacob with their brother Shimon, or Simeon, and Benjamin in tow. So the 11 are back together again, and that's where we start at 44.1. It says, he commanded the one over his house. So this is Joseph. He's commanding his right-hand man, his servant. Joseph commanded the the right-hand man over his house saying, Fill the men's, that's his brothers, the 11 brothers. Fill the 11 brothers' bags with food, as much as they can carry. And put each man's silver in his bag's mouth. And check this out. Put my cup, the silver cup, in the bag's mouth of the youngest, that is Benjamin, with his grain and silver he, I should say grain and silver, he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away, they and their donkeys. And so the brothers, they got what they finally came for. They got Shimon's, uh, Simeon, right? Shimon in Hebrew. They got grain. They got the the man's orders filled. And even more, they got full stomachs. They got a good night's sleep. But they also got more than they came for, because Joseph frames his full brother, Benjamin. He frames him. And in doing so, he actually frames all the brothers. Revenge. He's getting them back. Just as, you remember the beginning of all this, right, where they sold him? Just as he had his overseer, last time stashed silver coins in all their bags before, this time there's one silver cup placed in the bag, benji's bag right they sold him for silver in the beginning that word silver it occurs five times here in this section there's an emphasis on it and it's likely i think meant to remind us readers and hearers of the start of all this when judah and his brothers sold joseph for silver he's doing the same thing back to them he's getting them back and at one level, I think this story is underscoring kind of how this love or lust for money has the potential to corrupt people and to damage relationships and hurt family. Any of y'all familiar with anything like that? <laughs> um, it's like ever since the brothers sold Joseph for silver way back when, it will be the silver that hangs over their heads like a dark cloud or a silver cloud and follows them wherever they go. Something to think about. How money motivates us to make good decisions or bad ones and the lasting effects of all that. But the end of the day, what we have here is just a classical setup, a framing. A target has been identified and evidence is planted in Benji's bag while he's sleeping to make it look like he stole from this powerful Egyptian man, Joseph. It's sinister, but Joseph wants to see. When Benji is caught, will the brothers sell him out like they did me? Or will they have his back? That's what we're about to find out. So let's continue reading. When they had gone out of the city and were not yet far off, Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, ask them, why have you rewarded evil for good? Isn't this that from which my Lord drinks and by which he indeed divines? You've done evil in so doing. And he overtook them and he spoke these words to them. So the sun rises, the 11 brothers depart for Canaan. They're headed back to their dad, or so they think. Joseph knows better. His servant knows better. We know better. The brothers have no idea what's about to hit them, and I have to be honest. It's kind of sick and twisted what happens here. It's pretty messed up to do this to your family. The brothers leave thinking everything is well, and in a moment, everything changes. He issues a command. We got a a word of the week here. Ucase. I like that word. It's the word I learned this week. I'd never heard of it. Ucase. It's our word of the week. It means a legal proclamation or order. So Joseph issues his Ucase and he tells his servant to get up and to chase after them, to overtake them. It's the closest thing we get in scripture to a high speed chase. It's like an ancient version of the TV show Cops or watching OJ speed down the interstate in his white truck, right? And it's all planned. It's crazy. He tells the servant, when you overtake them, hey, ask them two accusatory questions and make one accusation or one accusatory declaration. Here's the first question. Why have you rewarded evil for good? I don't know about you, but when I'm pulled over by the cops, yes, I've been pulled over by the cops, that's not fun. That's not fun. My heart's pounding. I start sweating. Even if I think a cop might pull me over, like I get all paranoid about it, right? This is essentially the envoy of the most powerful man in Egypt. The place they're still in, who bears down on them. They must have been freaking out when they noticed someone hot on their trail, right? Anxiety attack starts happening But it must have went to the next level when they saw who it actually was. And it must have raised another notch still when he asked them, hey, we treated you so well, why are you treating us so wrong? Why are you rewarding our good with evil? So things are compounding here. And the second question is also interesting that he's supposed to ask. Isn't this my Lord's drinking cup, the one he uses for divination? More on divination later. I don't know that Joseph actually does it, but um, to make it seem more Egyptian, perhaps that's what's going on. Then he makes the accusation again. Essentially, the, the, what he said in the first question, you have done evil. And at this point, I think they had to be like sweating bullets on the verge of panic attacks. They're also a little bit confused. They don't understand what's going on. So look at these next few verses in verse 7. They said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Like, they don't know why he's asking this question. Far be it from your servants, us, the 11 brothers, that we should do such a thing. Look, the silver, which we found in our bag's mouths, he's talking about last time, we brought to you again. We brought it back from the land of Canaan. How then should we steal silver or gold out of your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die. That's how confident they are that they don't have it. Let him die. If you find silver on any of us, let that brother die. And let us become your slaves. And he said, now also let it be according to your words. He with whom it is found will be my slave and you will be blameless. And so even in the midst of these accusations and confusion, some logic manages to prevail. It doesn't seem right to the brothers. They respond with denial. They plead their ignorance and their innocence. They use the past as an example of their trustworthiness. And they ask a question that implies the impossibility of theft from the master. They welcome punishment should they be found guilty. And there's something to be said for the logic here and the reasonableness here under pressure. And here's something else. This time, did you notice? All the brothers are looking out for one another. This time, they're all looking out for one another. Previously, when these same brothers sold Joseph into slavery and sent him down to Egypt, they were looking out for themselves. Now they're looking out for each other. Something's happened. And when we've allowed God to work his chains in us, as the brothers seem to have done, we find that our interest shifts from self-interest to include the interests of others. Did you hear me on that? When we've allowed God to work change in us, as the brothers seem to have done, we find that our interest shifts from just ourselves to now including other people. Do you follow me? When God gets a hold of us, and I mean like really gets a hold of us, one mark is that we begin to see others and hear others and think about others. We begin to think about how our actions affect others. An earmarked trait of God's people is that they care for one another. That's been an earmarked trait of Christians since this whole Christian thing started. In fact, in the ancient world, Christians were thought weird because of how much they cared for one another and shared with one another. So they strive, Christians, to consider how what they're saying and what they're doing affects each other or others. And yes, we we all fail at this sometimes. Sometimes we're selfish, but we're called to be a people who consider one another and who consider each other. That's the case in our places of work, our schools, our friendships, and dare I say, our church. Do you ever think about that? Everything about how your actions affect others? Your words? Your presence or lack thereof? your participation or lack thereof, your giving or lack thereof. Part of the ethos or ethos of the church of God's people is that how we live affects the whole body. This is an analogy the New Testament uses, right? The hand affects the foot and the foot the eye and the eye the hand and so on. So true transformation looks a lot like doing what each of us can to help create unity and preserve unity and foster unity. It looks like having each other's backs. Like being able to count on one another. You know, all my life as a Christian, 20 plus years in now, that's what I've longed for. What I've yearned for, and you know what? I've never fully, fully found that. A community of people that are just hungry to be a thinking people and people who are eager to serve and have absolute commitment. People who are putting church first and about putting church first. Maybe you're thinking, the pastor, aren't we supposed to put God first? What What did Jesus tell Peter three times? Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. He wasn't talking to a senior pastor at that moment. He was saying that for everyone. And in Revelation, as we studied a couple of years back, John says that some believers, they left their first love. He wasn't talking about Jesus. He wasn't talking about, he was talking about the church. We are called to love the church, period. The bride of Christ. We are tasked with. In the midst of Jesus' absence, his physical absence here, he's present with us through spirit, but physically, bodily absence, we are tasked, we Christians are tasked with caring for the church. That's what he told us to do. Caring for one another. Until he comes back. That's what he told us. And I don't think it'll stop then. I don't think when Jesus returns we'll stop caring for one another. It's the church's DNA because it's God's DNA. I'm gonna go on a short tangent. Um, I read a ton. I read a whole lot. And one of the things I read this week was talking about uh, the four types of churchgoers. Honestly, I'd never heard it put this way. And I wonder, as you hear these, um, where, you know, with all honesty, you might place yourself. Um, he said, first, we have the committed. He's got this committed group, and he characterizes this author by, he characterizes the committed by this, faithfully attending, faithfully involved, ministering to others steadily. Second, the disgruntled, (laughs) attending frequently, but unfulfilled, frustrated with people, frustrated with things, often offended. Third, the waffling. The waffling. At church when you feel like it, but probably uninvolved in most other things, quietly showing up when it's convenient, but if something shinier and more fun presents itself, you'll probably do that instead. Fourth, the disconnected. Church isn't a priority, seems outdated, and you're starting to have been, you're starting to or have been questioning altogether whether it's for you or not. That's interesting. The committed thinking of others, the disgruntled thinking of self, the waffling thinking of other things, the disconnected thinking of excuses. You find yourself in one of those categories. Ideally, right, of course, we'd like to have everyone part of the the first group. Every pastor longs for that. And I think most good pastors long for that uh, because God longs for that. We know that deep study and deep prayer and deep service and deep community are necessities for living a deeply meaningful life as opposed to a life on the surface, skimming the surface. And this passage hit me this week because it showed me that deep and real and authentic transformation results in caring for each other and caring for others. If I could put it differently, it showed me that being part of God's people means placing a premium on God's people. You follow. Being part of God's people means placing a premium on God's people, meeting with God's people, caring for God's people, loving God's people, studying with God's people, serving with God's people serving, God's people, serving God's people, praying with God's people, being a deep community. And if I could just offer a challenge to everyone here and everyone watching, I would ask you today, do you place a premium on that? Like, is it a priority in your life? And if not, Will you choose it? Would you make that step to, to just do that and commit? You know, asking people for commitment, oh, it isn't easy. It's a really hard thing to do. It makes me uncomfortable to ask for commitment, right? Um, but the pandemic at this point, look, it seems to be in decline, at least at the moment. Things are opening up and we're going to be able to do more and be church more. And all sorts of things are going to start competing for your time and your attention and your efforts. And I just want to ask you today, will you put the church of our Lord first? Will you make it a priority? Will you commit locally here in this congregation to deep study, deep prayer, deep service, deep community? Because that's where we're going. That's what we're after It's what we're about, and I want each of us to be about that because, as has been said, when we're all on the same team, (laughs) well, we are all on the same team, and we all have the same Father, the same God. We've all got the same Savior, Jesus. We've all got the same Empowerer, the Spirit. We've all got the same book, Scripture. We've all got the same enemy. We've all got the same orders, the Great Commission, We've all got the same promise, I'm with you always. And we've all got the same destination, seeing Jesus face to face. We've all got the same assignment to make disciples. We've all got the same call to be holy. And we need each other to do that. We need each other to be able to do that to the full. So I'm asking, will you decide today, please, to consider upping your commitment to the congregation here, to the bridge, to God's church. It's something I just ask you to ponder and think about. Verse 11, then they hurried, and each man took his bag down to the ground, and each man opened his bag. He searched, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. Talk about drama there. The cup was found in the youngest, Benjamin's bag. And then they tore their clothes, and each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. I know I'm short, but <laughs> um, yeah. So this is an insane scene right here. It really is. Uh, I mean, it's like reading. <laughs> it's like uh, it's like going by uh, an awful car wreck, right? You know, uh, when you don't want to like look because it's maybe too gory. Uh, but you kind of can't help it and your neck keeps like twisting to, to look. Um, yeah, this is, this is like that. I, when I'm reading, this is how I feel. It's like, I don't want to see this, but I can't help but to keep reading. So we see the emotional and psychological torment that's happening here. They're being played with. They tear their clothes and they cry out. It's a sign of distress. And then march back to the city or ride back to the city think about this. We don't know how far they got, but one has to wonder if they made it at least to the point where they'd sold Joseph into slavery before. If so, this would have been their fifth time passing that place. Five times, at least five times that Joseph forces them to revisit the place they'd committed a grave evil against him psychological trauma. I was, I was, uh, we were having our deep group last night and I was sharing about how when I was in high school, I had a car wreck, but it was on the way to my best friend's house. And so anytime after that, that I went to my best friend's house, I always had to pass that place where I had this horrible car crash. And it always like got me worked up inside. The closer I got, it's like a magnet, right? Like the closer I got, the more my emotions intensified. And probably if I went back there today, 30-ish years later, whatever, 20 something years later, like it would still feel like that. And these guys have to keep passing the same place where they committed this grave evil against their brother. And it's like, He keeps throwing it in their faces. Getting them to think about it. You ever know anyone like that who's constantly throwing stuff back in your face? Throwing the past up in your face? Yeah, yeah. Look at this. Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house and he was still there. They fell on the ground before him. And Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Don't you know that such a man as I can indeed do divination? That's kind of interesting. So the return story is framed. Judah's at the fore. Judah and his brothers. Judah, of course, is the brother through whom the messianic line of Jesus will come. He's the one brother out of all of them. And it's Judah, unexpectedly, who we see a major change in. Since we met Judah in Genesis 37, almost everything with him has been shady. In Genesis uh, 37, 5 to 27, he and his brothers are envious of Joseph. Judah and his brothers misinterpret Joseph's dreams. And it's Judah who convinces the brothers not to kill Joseph, but to sell him to make a profit. Then in Genesis 37, 32, Judah, among the coatless ten, tricks his dad, Jacob, by giving Jacob this blood-soaked coat that he had made for Joseph to to make Jacob think that Joseph was killed by an animal. It's not a great track record so far, and it keeps getting worse. In Genesis 38, Judah journeys, and he settles, and he marries, and he has three kids, and he buries two of them shortly after. He mistreats his daughter-in-law. He's abusive to her, Tamar. And she becomes a widow, and he engages later in incest and adultery with her. Not good. <laughs> and then Judah re-enters the story in Genesis 42, where he, along with the other nine brothers, is thrown into a pit by Joseph. But there he realizes his previous evil. And then in Genesis 43, 9... He is the one who after Reuben argued with dad Jacob steps up and convinces Jacob to let the brothers go back to Egypt with Benjamin and to get Shimon out of prison. And if we're paying close attention, we see this pretty dramatic change taking place in Judah. That's what's happening in the text. Unlike many of the other brothers, he seems to have some sort of motivation to change. And then in this bit that we're reading, Here, and for the rest of this chapter, we'll see the depth of that change. Judah gives a reason, an impassioned speech to Joseph. And Judah's speech, my friends, flies in the face of Joseph's envisioned future. Judah's speech, in other words, offers a future very different. His courage, his boldness, his willingness to speak up sets the stage for a dramatically different way forward into the future. And in the last verse that we're going to read today, we'll see, in fact, that Judah's speech is what sets the stage for reconciliation in this family. I'm going to say more about this speech, but I want to look at it first. And as we do, please remember this, that Joseph had laid out the ramifications of what the future would look like for these guilty brothers. And it wasn't good, death and slavery. But the speech comes onto the scene and it offers a stark contrast, a future different, a different future. Let's, let's read this. Look at this. Judah said, what will we tell my Lord? What do we speak? What, what what do we say? How will we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Here we are. My Lord's slaves, both we and he also in whose hand the cup is found, Benjamin. And he said, far be it from me. This is Joseph speaking. Far be it from me that I should do so. The man, in whose cu- the man in whose hand the cup is found, he will be my slave. But as for the rest of you, go up in peace to your father. <laughs> so it seems Judah does have some honesty in him. He's taking, trying to take responsibility. He says, look, we've been caught. We know we did wrong. Well, we had no idea, but now we do. And we're going to keep our word that we made to you. We're your slaves now. And Joseph responds, no, 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 no. Not so fast. I don't need you all to be my slaves. I just want Benji, the youngest, the thief. He's mine. He's, he's as good as dead. The rest of y'all can go back to your dad in peace. This is twisted. This is messed up. And, of course, Joseph knows well that if they go back to father this way, there will be no peace. But He's waiting. Is anyone going to step up and redeem the moment? And of course, they didn't stick up for him years ago, these brothers. But if they've really changed, someone in this moment will stand up for Benji. And someone does. It's Judah. We continue reading. And Judah came near to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let me, your servant, speak a word in my Lord's ears and don't let your anger burn against your servant, for you are even as Pharaoh. Judah, with incredible courage, comes before the ruler and asks for his ear, and he wants to speak. And Joseph allows Judah to come forward and speak to him. We get the content now of this future-changing speech. It's like a master class in a court of law. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? We said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man. This is argument one that they're making. Dear ruler, you asked us about our father, and we told you the truth. And a child of his old age, a little one, and his brothers, and his brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother, and his father loves him. That's kind of confusing. We'll parse that out. You said to your servants, Bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the boy can't leave his father. For if he should leave his father, his father will die. And you said to your servants, well, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you'll see my face no more. So this is argument number two. Dear ruler, you asked us about our youngest brother, and we told you the truth. You asked us to bring him, and against all odds, even putting our father's life on the line, and my life on the line. Remember Judah said, if anything happens to Benji, you, you know, like I'm done. Against all those odds, we brought Benji here. And then we get this. When we came up to your servant, my father, we, we told him the words of my Lord. It's a flashback. It's like looking back to what Joseph said for the brothers to do when they went back to Canaan. He says, when we came up to your servant, my father, we told him the words of our Lord, of my Lord. Our father said, go again and buy us a little food. And we said, we can't go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we'll go down for we may not see the man's face unless our youngest brother's with us. And your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One went out from me. And I said, surely he's torn torn in pieces. And I haven't seen him since. And if you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you'll bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. So argument number three, dear ruler, please have mercy on our father. The death of his one son, Joseph, (laughs) was enough. If Benji dies, it'll just do him in. And unknowingly, in this third argument, Judah conveys to Joseph for the first time. This is the first time Joseph ever realizes it. First time Joseph ever hears it. Judah conveys to Joseph for the first time how his dad felt about him. Joseph learns in this moment that his dad, after thinking that Joseph had been killed, had spent a lifetime grieving for him and remembering him and thinking about him. And in this moment, I think Joseph must have felt so vindicated. He realized that all this time, dad's been thinking about me. We haven't talked for nearly three decades, but all this time, Dad's been thinking about me. He didn't forget me. He missed me. He loved me. He was grieving me. Judah says, Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, since his life is bound up in the boy's life, Benjamin's life, when he sees that the boy is no more, he will die. Your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. Essentially, just death. For your servant became collateral. Judah saying, look, I I put my own neck out. I became collateral for the boy Benji. (laughs) To my father saying, if I don't bring him back to you, then I'll bear that blame before you, dad, forever. So please, man... (laughs) Please let your servant, let me, Judah, stay here as your slave instead of Benji, the boy. And let the boy go back up to Canaan with his brothers. For how will I ever go up to my father again if the boy isn't with me? lest I will see that evil, Sheol, death, come upon my father. And so argument for dear ruler, I promised my father we'd bring little Benji back, or he's probably an adult at this time. If he doesn't go back, my father's as good as dead. He'll die of a broken heart. And of course, he's telling Joseph this about his own father unwittingly. And then Judah says to Joseph, so please take my life, Instead of Benji's. Spare Benji's life. This is incredible, and one of the reasons it's it's incredible is because, as far as I know, this is the very first time in all of Scripture that we see this concept of vicarious atonement or vicarious suffering that is becoming a sacrifice for someone else. This is the very first occasion of it. And it comes from the figure through whom Jesus comes who will have the ultimate vicarious atonement. It's amazing. This in Judah's DNA will carry forward and play itself out in Jesus' life in an even more radical way. And then we get this kicker, what it's all been working toward. We're going to read one more verse. 45.1, then Joseph couldn't control himself before all who stood before him. And he called out, make everyone go out from me. And no one else stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. (laughs) After Judah's impassioned speech, Joseph cracks. He can't take it any longer. No more tests, no more ruse. No more undercover brother. The truth surfaces as he reveals himself to his brothers. And I don't want you to miss this, friends. The change Judah allowed God to work in him is, I think, what helped bring about the change in Joseph. And that's still exactly how it works. When God works a change in you and me, others see it. And when God works a change in you and me, and we commit to Him with all we've got, people notice. That's why we got to be here for one another. Because look, if God's working change in you and me, (laughs) if God's working change in us, and we don't give other people the chance to see that and experience it, to see God at work, then we're essentially robbing them of an experience of God. If God's working in me and I don't allow you to see that, I'm robbing you when I forsake committing to y'all and to the church, I don't only rob you of seeing what God's up to, but I rob God too. I rob Him of the opportunity to be glorified. That's serious stuff. Shall we rob God of His glory? I hope not. But if we don't commit to one another, make that a high priority, then that's what we do. We got to place a premium on this. We must be intentional about it. Deep study, deep prayer, deep service, deep community. No more shallow. No shallow, deep depth. There's a lot of other places you can go to get shallow. I don't want to play church here. Not interested. Don't want to play Christian. Not interested. I was reading something this week that essentially said, said this. The one thing that has caused the greatest wound to Christianity in this country in the last few decades is nominal Christianity. We actually have a second word of the week this week. Nominal Christianity. Nominal is the Greek word for name. Nominal Christian means being Christian in name only, but not bearing fruit. Nominal Christianity is being associated with a congregation or a denomination or whatever, but that's it. No fruit, no real commitment, self-interested. And of course, the only proper solution to that is deep Christianity. Committed, fruit-bearing, team-based, family-based Christianity. And here's where all this really hits me. Joseph had a plan. Follow here. Joseph had a plan laid out for his, br- if his brothers were to, t- to disappoint him. Let me say that again. That was horrible. Joseph had a plan laid out that was gonna take place if his brothers were to disappoint him. If they failed the test, then things would have ended horribly. He had the future mapped out for them. He had it ready for them. But Judah speaks up and it changes everything. It changes the future landscape for the family, for all of Israel, for you and me as Christians. It changes the future landscape. And, you know, I think there's a sense which we're we're in a moment kind of like that right now. We are in this moment coming out of COVID, out of this time where we're still like left unsure what exactly the future looks like. We don't know, but here's what I want to say. I don't believe the future is simply going back to how things used to be. It can't be. God's doing a new thing and opening up new doors, forging new paths and giving, yes, even us new opportunities. And will we have completely missed the boat if we just try to go back to how it was? I think so. Judah's speech reminds us to be courageous and bold and to march into the future by placing a premium on what God cares for, and that's people. Our church's leadership is currently exploring how do we get this soul good initiative off the ground? How do we get it up and running in our community? How do we get to feeding people and getting hygiene products to people? We're talking right now with some schools this coming week about some partnerships. There's a, I think some fires brewing in some people in our community. We're talking about possible sports camps that we can get going. We're talking about how we can partner with Bethel University. We're talking about growing deep groups. We're talking about raising up some ministers from among us. By the way, you'll hear more about that next week, I hope. But hopefully we have a people, a group of people here forging ahead toward ordination, which is a beautiful thing. But it takes sacrifice for the community, and it takes commitment to the community. Did you notice, by the way, that all the key characters in this chapter have to sacrifice and commit? Jacob sacrifices his sense of security by allowing Benjamin to go to Egypt with the brothers. It saves the family from starvation and it saves Shimon from prison. Judah sacrifices for his brothers by putting himself on the line so that the rest of them might live, especially Benji. Joseph sacrifices his lust for revenge and chooses reconciliation. And here on this Palm Sunday, where we lead into Holy Week, All this reminds us that Jesus calls each of us to be disciples. And discipleship places a premium on one's willingness to forsake their life for the good of the larger concerns of the gospel. So what do you place a premium on? What do you place a premium on? Like really, really place a premium on? Would you choose today to place a premium on the church? That's what I'm asking. I hope you won't shortchange it. Another thing I was reading uh, this week was written back in 1968 by a minister in New York, and it said this. This is what I'm going to close with. This was written in 1968. Whenever a man or woman has made the vow of Christian discipleship, this priority has been given. First, the kingdom. First, the, kingdom. the trouble, he says, is that for the most part, we are distracted Christians, 1968. Distracted among the plethora of claims that are made on us and unable to sort out the priorities. We're drawn away from the priority of his kingdom. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. If we're absolutely honest about this, he says, we don't do this. We have to admit... <laughs> that we've often simply reversed this priority. We've given first place to securing material prosperity and then have hoped that somehow the blessings of the kingdom would be ours as well. We try to make ourselves and our families secure in the goods of this world and then we see if there's something left over that might be of use for the kingdom. According to Jesus, there's nothing wrong in seeking provision. It's the priority that's wrong. This is the devastating command. First, the kingdom. Devastating command. First, the kingdom. First, because everything you have comes from the heavenly father and you're simply his trustee. First, because the logic of the Christian mind is not self-neighbor God, but God-neighbor self. First, because this is what we were created for, and therefore the qualities of the kingdom take precedence over all earthly possessions and physical desires. And that, friends, is the bottom line. First, not second, fifth, or tenth. First, seek his kingdom. Place a premium on seeking first his kingdom. And imagine what a future, driven by that and guided by that, looks like. First His kingdom. First His kingdom. Amen? Amen. Stand and let me bless you. If you would turn your palms upright and receive this benediction. And now, brothers and sisters, may you go forward in the truth that to be Christian means first his kingdom. May you go forth putting his kingdom first. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.